Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. Okay, Kenna, today I wanted to ask you if you remembered a while ago there was that story about North Korea and how everybody there had to get the same haircut as Kim Jong-un. No, I don't remember this story. You don't? I don't. I mean, maybe in passing, maybe we talked about it on the pod. You know my memory. <laughs> my memory's bad too. No, th- I don't remember us talking about it on the pod, but I thought what happened is then we all watched a YouTube video kind of about that phenomenon and these Australian dudes like debunked it. Oh, I think, okay, I was not paying attention because I think it was at work and I got distracted. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. How dare you work at work? How dare you <laughs> while we watch YouTube videos? <laughs> Um, yeah, so basically what happened is there was this, like, news article that came out in 2014 where it was, like, every man in North Korea is forced to get the same haircut as Kim Jong-un. And then there were, like, all these, like, major news places picked it up here in the U.S. and ran with it. And then there were all these, like, jokes about it all over TV for, like, a whole month. Everybody in the United States was talking about it. Um, and then we watched this video where these guys went to North Korea to get a haircut from Australia. And they got... They just got a haircut and they talked kind of about like the power of language as a tool of manipulation Mm. and like propaganda and it was a really interesting thing. But this is the conversation that led to me just like looking up photos of everyday life in North Korea. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yes, um, because I was like thinking about it and I'm like, wow, I actually have no idea what happens in North Korea. I have no clue. So I started Googling photos after all of this and... I was pretty surprised to see that it looks like just pretty much the same as life in the United States, right? Do you remember any of the photos? Uh, not really. I feel like there was like a water park and I was like, oh, they have a water park. Right. It was just people (laughs) working like normal jobs, eating at restaurants, going to water parks. There were pictures of like really cute little kids in very cute dresses. Like it was just very, very normal. And I don't know what I expected. But I do know that if just a normal kind of place surprised me, I must have been expecting something super abnormal or super different than the U.S. Yeah, I think in my mind, like, because I had watched that, like, Vice documentary that came out, like, years ago where, like, Dennis Rodman went to North Korea and they're like, nobody's around. And I was just like, oh, and for some reason in my mind, I'm like, everyone's just inside all the time. I mean, and they're not like they don't go out, but then I was like, I don't, I am like, that was so long ago where I'm just like, or that movie that came out, remember with uh, like Seth Rogen and James Franco about North Korea? Yes. And the interview. The interview. And so I was just like, I guess it's a, like, for some reason, like, I was just like, I guess, like, it's just, uh, I don't know, you can't do much. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I will say that anytime I've taken friends of mine from like San Francisco or LA to Fresno, they always almost immediately are like, how come nobody's on the street? And I'm like, what? And they're like, nobody's on your streets. Nobody walks around here. What's going on? And it's not something I noticed, but being there, it's just like not a really walk around culture in the city. So I feel like too if you're like oh I didn't see people on the streets like some places you just won't and that's just how it is (laughs) yeah I mean being from like a small town like you'll always see someone like on a bike 
Oh, like, yeah. No, in Fresno, also because it gets really hot in Fresno. So it's like you have weather and there's like not places you would really walk to, you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see this. Yeah, because it's, yeah. I. It's so funny being from a small town too. things that I expect where sometimes I'm like, there's a sidewalk here? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like too, it's like seeing people around is probably like a small town and a big city expectation, but not like a, a suburbs like, just, like, a kind of medium-sized yes. city expectation. Oh, wow. Okay, so I have just fully realized that I've only lived in tiny town or big city. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, one of the things that really shocked me, too, when I was looking at these photos of just North Korea, is that um, there were people who looked very much like they were just white Westerners just, like, visiting North Korea. Oh, really? Yeah. I was, like, I thought that, like, uh foreigners like weren't allowed okay so this is what i thought too and then i saw the photos and i was like these are just like some there's just some white dude with like long red hair and a beard there hanging out like talking to kids you know so then i got in my head uh, that maybe i wanted to visit north korea because <laughs> i was like i don't know what happens there like people go there so i looked into it like holy shit could i just go to north korea and it turns out that i cannot but not because of North Korea. Oh, because the U.S. won't let you go. The United States will not let any Americans go there, not since 2017. What? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's one year after the American student Otto Warmbier was arrested for trying to steal a political sign and then was sentenced to 15 years in prison. But then in 2017, he fell into a coma and he was returned to the United States and he died in a hospital here a week later. And it does seem like a pretty harsh punishment for trying to steal a sign, right? On one hand, he was a teenager, a kid, just goofing around. On the other hand, it's obviously really disrespectful for white American tourists to go to other countries and try to steal things and fuck with people's shit, right? And for the record, it would be illegal to do that in the United States too, just with like a lot less harsh terms. If you steal something from the government here and it's worth less than $1,000, you get a misdemeanor charge and it's punishable by one year in prison and a $100,000 fine. Um, unless probably you know you're a black or brown teenage boy or young man doing it, then the police might just shoot you here because the United States obviously has a horrific track record with police brutality and racism. But if we go with the legal limit, one year in prison is a lot less than 15 years. So, you know, it does seem a lot harsher, the punishment there. And long story short, we're not allowed as Americans to go to North Korea anymore because the United States won't let us after that. Huh. Yeah, very interesting. Um, but even that was kind of surprising to me, right? Like, I'm an American. Our whole thing is supposed to be freedom. Yeah. Right? I, freedom, baby. Freedom. Like, I would think I would have the freedom to go to North Korea if I wanted to. Like, I mean, is it like the thing, like, with Cuba? Like, where you can go to Cuba, but you have to go to a different country first? Well, I don't think you can go to North Korea with an American passport. At all. Oh, okay. So, like, you couldn't, like go to Korea or go to like I don't know like China and then go to Korea I think it's based on an American passport you can't do it so like with Cuba we had like embargoes and sanctions so like airlines wouldn't go there but you could travel on an airline to a different place and then fly Uh, in but with North Korea it's literally that if you have an American passport you cannot travel to North Korea on an American passport huh okay like wow I never I never thought much about this right I was just like we are we're blocked by them it's like it's like the Iron Curtain. Right. Like, but, but in we my mind, did it. Yes. And yeah. that's shocking, right? Yeah. Like, there are American extreme tourists. Like, we have this thing called extreme tourism where uh, Americans just literally try to go to the most dangerous places they can think of. 
Um, like they go to active war zones. They go to like these really dangerous places, these extreme tourists. But for some reason, like the United States is like, yeah, you're, you're free. Go do whatever you want, except for go to North Korea. And it's weird because when you look at North Korea, you're like, this is not an active war zone. Yeah. And granted, again, like the, the 15 years in prison for stealing the sign, for sure. But there's a lot of other countries with way strict Oh, yeah. Remember legal when systems. we were young? It was, I forget which country. I want to say it was, in, it was in Southeast Asia, but an American teenager got, um, oh, where they hit you with the stick? Caned. He got caned for doing, like, something. I don't remember I that. it was graffiti. But I do remember it was always, like, like... I never grew up with enough money to like travel internationally, but I remember the people on TV were like, oh, if you travel internationally, never travel with drugs or alcohol through these countries because you can get detained and put in prison just for being in these countries with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, it's like, um, yeah, where you can get like like sentences that you're like, what? Right, like, but, but we can still go to those countries. Yeah, just don't bring drugs. We just cannot go to North Korea at all. That's, yeah. It's very interesting. So, Basically, all of this got me thinking about how little I truly understand uh, places outside of the United States. And I was thinking about that episode we did on CIA propaganda and how I really don't know if I could trust what the media tells me about other countries. Like maybe it's all tainted by the CIA. And then I got my tinfoil conspiracy hat on for a second. (laughs) But then I took it off because it turns out I actually don't need conspiracies to follow this train of thought because there actually is a very real reason that I have weird ideas about North Korea and that reason is a little thing called Radio Free Asia. Oh, okay. I feel like you were mentioning this a little bit the other day and I was like, what? Yeah. Like yeah. in my mind, it's like Radio Disney. <laughs> okay. Okay. There are some things being from Colorado that I don't understand about California. One, you guys have Radio Disney. I don't know what that was. We didn't have that when I was growing up. I okay. don't think. Maybe it's just me being a millennial. May I think it could be like a satellite radio thing. Yes. Also, what I don't understand about California is why you have to learn about the Donner Party in school. You have to. We all know about the Donner Party. That's our heritage. <laughs> That's our roots. I like the Donner Party story because it's one of those stories when you're talking about the horrific colonization of the United States where you're like, maybe those people got what they deserved. That's all I'm saying. And I can say that because those were probably my ancestors as a white person whose family came to the United States very early on, like way too early on. Like they definitely were responsible for a lot of destruction. When you hear the story of the Donner Party, it's a bunch of white people who are like, I'm going to go to California and get rich. The whole way they're traveling, right? Everybody's like, it's too late. You're going to die if you keep going. Like, it's going to snow. You're going to get stuck. You you can't go. And the men in the party were like, oh, well, like, we know this shortcut. It's going to be fine. And their wives were like, I think maybe you're wrong. And this is awful. And they're like, shut up, woman. You know, like, we're going to do it. And everybody, they had so many chances to turn around. Everybody was like, stop doing this, stop doing this, this months long journey with like horses out to California and nobody listened. And sure enough, they get to around Tahoe, right? Entering (laughs) California. And it's just like, oh, did you want a fucking blizzard? And then she's like, and they're like, oh my God, we're stuck. Who could have predicted this? But wildly, uh, because the men were like, we'll handle it, we're men. They exerted their energy too fast and like all the men died. Most of the men died, but the women and children survived. And the women the whole time were just like, my fucking stupid ass husband. Oh, he did this to us. But then to survive, the women and the children had to eat their dead husbands. 
Wow. Right? Yeah, and then uh, y'all go to, like, field trips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this like, is what it means to be a Californian, is to learn about the cannibalism of the Dr. Hardy. I love this, and it makes me, it makes me um, feel amazing that California has welcomed me into its yes. arms. Yes, yes, we went to a Donner party the other night. Yes, Small get-together. Yes, we did. In our friend's backyard, yes, uh, that was Donner party themed. But yeah, so... You know, we were talking about Radio Free Asia, <laughs> not the Donner Party. You just have a little California history. If you didn't know, now you know. Um, do you know anything about Radio Free Asia? Uh, no. Okay. So, basically, Radio Free Asia is a news network that ostensibly reports on political oppression in Asia, specifically in Myanmar, Cambodia, China, Laos, North Korea, and Vietnam. And if you look at the Radio Free Asia website, they say that it's a private nonprofit corporation funded by the U.S. government. Okay. Congress, to be exact. Okay, so wait, it's nonprofit, but it's funded by the government, so wouldn't it be a government agency? But it's not a government agency. Yeah, you're about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about the best way you can understand it. It's like, you know when, like, nonprofits here, like, are in charge of stuff that should be, like, government run and you're just like oh well then these nonprofits just get money from the government to just do whatever and there's no oversight because it's technically not the government yeah this one um is even more interesting than that oh golly yeah yeah yeah. so you might be asking uh why would the united states government be funding a news source about things that happen in other countries outside of the united states uh, we don't even have that much of that here in the United States, right? Like, we have PBS, but that's mostly funded by member contributions. Yeah, I thought, like, at a certain point, they weren't even taking money from the government anymore. Or if so, it's, like, like 5%. It's actually, for PBS, it's 15% oh. of their funding that comes from the U.S. government. But the rest of it, you know, they have those pledge drives all the time, trying to get people to donate money. Yeah. And then we also have NPR, uh, National Public Radio, and anyone who has listened to NPR knows they are always looking for listener contributions, right? Oh my gosh, they're like, give us your car too. Yeah, they really run the guilt machine on that one. <laughs> they're like, oh, I, I, I see you're here listening to us. Mm, too bad we can't afford to eat unless you pay us. <laughs> they're like, did you buy a coffee this morning? Yeah! <laughs> did you know that... You could buy us a coffee, but here you're drinking your own coffee and not even caring about us. And you're like, oh my God. Yeah. You're like, I guess I'm getting an NPR fucking tote bag. Okay. <laughs> so, but NPR actually says that less than 1% of their annual operating budget comes from federal grants. So they actually don't receive much public funding either. And of course there's other like smaller public broadcasting things like community radio and college radio and American public access television, whatever. But you know, it's pretty minimal. It's not like the US government is funding like public news sources heavily here in the United States. Meanwhile, Radio Free Asia is funded exclusively through an annual grant from the United States Agency for Global Media with a budget of over $39 million per year what? in 2021. What? Um, and if you want to do the math, which I obviously did, 1% of NPR's 2021 budget, which was a little under $300 million, that would be around $3 million that NPR got of government funding uh, going to National Public Radio here. So why is 10 times that budget going to Radio Free Asia? 
Uh, ooh, it seems like there might the government might have some underlying reasons. It might, and we're going to get into all of them. <laughs> so if you listen to our episode on the CIA, which is episode 28, um, I went through and numbered all of our episodes to make them easy to reference and index. Thank you for doing that, because I would just be like, if you asked me what episode we were on, I'd be like, 500. I think we're on 45. Okay. It's, it's good to know. Oh, we're almost at a year. Wait, have we been doing this a year? Almost a year. Oh my goodness. I know. Uh, yeah. So if you listen to our episode on the CIA, which is episode 28, you know all about Operation Mockingbird, which is the CIA's propaganda wing dedicated to anti-communist propaganda during the Cold War. Now, this program was multifaceted and involved everything from bribing journalists in the United States to write stories that fit the CIA narrative of activities happening abroad, to funding what they believed to be anti-communist Hollywood movies, and even to funding artists like Jackson Pollock, I think, maybe was one of them, to make art that they believed no communist artist could ever reproduce due to its freedom of expression. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I feel like I could reproduce Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Just say, I mean... Actually, in person, it is quite amazing and moving, but also it's splatter paint. Well, you know me, I don't understand art, so oh, I have no... Oh, I'm doing a hair flip right now. <laughs> you understand art. <laughs> <laughs> but Operation Mockingbird, it was a really real thing. And you can actually read about it now in declassified documents on U.S. government websites, which are super interesting. See, the CIA's main goal was to stop the spread of communism globally. And they were given permission to do a lot of sketchy things in that pursuit. Propaganda was an effective tool that they relied on a lot, but not just here in the United States. In fact, they began operating propaganda like media mills all around the world. Huh. So, one of these propaganda news sources was something called Radio Free Europe. So, this was a radio broadcasting organization that the CIA in the United States created in the year 1950, so like peak Cold War, right? to broadcast anti-communist messaging to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Oh, okay. So Radio Free Europe had an estimated 35 million listeners at its height. Wow. Yeah, and as far as propaganda goes, it was pretty successful. Lots of people actually say Radio Free Europe was a major contributing factor to the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the first Radio Free Europe broadcast, it happened in Munich in West Germany on July 4th, 1950, and the transmission was sent to Czechoslovakia. Soon, it was being broadcast, though, in most Soviet countries in 15 different languages. And remember, the funding for this was all CIA from the U.S. government, but the CIA's involvement in Radio Free Europe was kept a secret until the late 1960s. They didn't want anyone knowing that Radio Free Europe was them. And this had two advantages. The first is that it, like, kept the USSR off their trail. Like, if they didn't know where Radio Free Europe was coming from, it would be harder for them to shut it down. And two, it made Radio Free Europe sound like an underground resistance movement with more legitimacy to the people listening. Like, if you heard this and you were like, yeah, we're people in Europe fighting for our own liberation against communism, you'd be like, wow, it's like, a movement of the people. Maybe I should reconsider what I've been thinking about communism. Mm. But if you heard it and you were like, yeah, that's the U.S., that's like our global enemy trying to convince us that everything we like is terrible, then you wouldn't be as receptive to hearing it, right? You'd mm. be like, mm, I don't know, that's just like some weird government war shit. However, once the Soviet Union realized this was the U.S. government, they did a pretty good job of trying to jam the signal so it could no longer transmit to people, and it kind of became this cat and mouse game back and forth. Like, Radio Free Europe would pop up somewhere and then the Soviet Union would find it and shut it down. 
And this would go on and on and on until around 1988. So Radio Free Europe ran officially under the helm of the CIA until 1971, at which point its financing and operation was transferred to another U.S. government agency, the Board for International Broadcasting. And this was all appointed and staffed by the U.S. president. Then in 1976, Radio Free Europe was combined with another similar government-run broadcasting organization called Radio Liberty. And these two together became RFE slash RL, Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty. And by 1989, the Cold War was over. The USSR fell just a couple of years after that. And Radio Free Europe kind of came up with a new agenda. So in 1995, headquarters were moved to Prague. And then by 1998, the new target was Iraq and Iran. By the early 2000s, Radio Free Europe had locations throughout Eastern Europe, former Soviet republics, the Middle East, a lot of places producing radio, television, and internet content in 20 countries and 30 languages. In fact, Radio Free Europe does not broadcast in English at all. Really? Yeah, and it is still fully funded by the U.S. government. This was so successful that the CIA continued propaganda efforts globally in other regions, too. And this is what brings us to Radio Free Asia. Mm. So in 1961, this Harvard economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, I think is how it's pronounced, he arrived in India and he had this new role. He was the American ambassador to India. And Galbraith quickly became aware of this political journal called Quest that could be found throughout Asia, including in India. And Galbraith right away noticed that this journal was, for lack of a better word, bad. Uh, his quote on it is actually a pretty good roast. It says, It had a feel of intellectual and political competence that was sub-zero. It would make you yearn for the political sophistication of the National Enquirer. <laughs> Do you remember what the National Enquirer was? Oh yeah, Bat Boy. Bat Boy, yes. Like, in our childhood years, the National Enquirer, it's this tabloid, and it was famous for running stories about a half bat, half boy. Yeah. With, like, a really badly photoshopped photo. Yes. And one time he escaped. Oh, I remember Bat Boy Escapes. Yeah, that was, that was an iconic <laughs> moment in National Enquirer history. So this guy was just like, yeah, like, uh, this Quest magazine, news publication, whatever, like, I would rather be reading about Bat Boy, basically. So... Galbraith looks into this and learns that Quest is actually being published with money from the CIA. So he's basically like, uh, this is embarrassing. You guys have to shut the shit down. And it turns out that they did, but Quest was not the only CIA news publication happening in Asia at the time. In the 1960s, the CIA had over 800 different news and public information organizations or just like individual reporters all at its disposal for its international communications missions. One CIA official said that these 800 organizations ranged in importance from Radio Free Europe to a third string guy in Quito who could probably get something in the local paper. The CIA officially called this their propaganda assets inventory. Some people though called it the Wurlitzer. According to the New York Times in 1977, Almost at the push of a button, the Wurlitzer became the means for orchestrating in almost any language, anywhere in the world, whatever tune the CIA was in the mood to hear. So sometimes the CIA just fully invented a new service and then they would pay their bills through like a bogus fake corporation they set up. Other times they might fund an independent entrepreneur to do it all for them. But according to that same New York Times article, 
uh, journalists were worried that these CIA propaganda-filled like news sources, which could be purposely misleading or just downright false, might accidentally be picked up by American reporters overseas and included in their dispatches back at home. So journalists were like, yeah, okay, you guys have some top secret mission abroad to stop the spread of communism and you've got all this propaganda you're putting out there in other countries. What happens if one of our journalists doesn't feel and then they just report it back home like it's fact? And oh, that's, that's confusing. It's confusing, especially when you consider that, again, the CIA had their own special separate propaganda operations back home that they were working with lots of news sources here, like the Washington Post and the New York Times. Which seems, uh, I mean, not that, you know, this doesn't matter, but it seems like illegal to me. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely sketchy, we'll say. It's, it's an ethically bad. Yeah, I mean, not that a lot of the laws here make sense. Right, but it's, you know, it's the thing everybody's always like, state-run media. And you're like, well, we did that. We know that. <laughs> I know. We know that. Like, oh. Um, so it would be easy, basically, for a U.S. journalist with good intentions to accidentally parrot these CIA propaganda stories from abroad without even realizing it. Because uh, the goal of the U.S. government was to shield the CIA from attachment to these projects. It would be pretty hard, if they were doing it right, to know it was the CIA. And one way they did this was through two proxy groups, the Free Europe Committee and the American Committee for Liberation. And these were separate groups that engaged in less popular propaganda activities. Really? Yeah, so they would have, like, totally false research done on the USSR that they would put out and present like it would be fact, but you wouldn't be able to know that it was the CIA doing this. It would look like a totally like real like journal, like a study basically. I feel like that's very like with today, like you see a lot of like fake news stories on the internet and then when you look close they're funded by big like right-wing organizations, you know, the ones that are like they're teaching CRTs and they're like, you know, just like these like fake stories where you like go deep and you're like oh it's funded by this organization like it's, right <laughs> and they're you know, like but it literally takes like two minutes to find out that it's not real right and I mean for something like this you would have a really hard time like there would be no way for you to know this was the CIA doing that yeah because like I'm guessing during this time you couldn't just easily go to the USSR Mm, I mean, I wonder. That'd actually be interesting to think about how... Because I know Americans did travel to the USSR. Yeah, but I'm sure when you came back, people were like, what are you doing? Yeah, for sure. Like, if you were like, hey, I just came back from the USSR, and it turns out they don't live in whatever they... Like a hut. They don't live in huts. Like, they actually live in apartment buildings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm sure they'd be like, you're going to really report on that? Right. So more obscure than these two groups, though, that were doing these, like, fake studies about the USSR, even were... Free Cuba Radio and Radio Free Asia. Mm. Yes. So Radio Free Asia was a small operation. It began transmitting in 1951 from what the New York Times called an elaborate set of transmitters in Manila. The CIA wanted Radio Free Asia to be as successful fighting communism in Asia as Radio Free Europe had been in Eastern Europe. And Radio Free Asia was one arm of the Committee for Free Asia, developed by the CIA, but intended to shield the CIA from being directly linked to Radio Free Asia at all. It later ended up changing its name actually to the Asia Foundation, 
And the Asia Foundation was headed for years by a man named Robert Bloom, who officially resigned from his role at the CIA to take over the Asia Foundation, which is kind of like the Spider-Man meme pointing at himself, right? It's like, you're the CIA. No, you're the CIA. But, like, one is the CIA and one is the Asia Foundation, right? And if you're wondering how removed the CIA was from this new Asia Foundation... It's not very. They've been documented doing things like providing cover for CIA operatives, carrying out a variety of media-related activities on behalf of the U.S. government, including a program that started in 1955 where they selected and funded journalists to study in Asia from Harvard's prestigious Neiman Fellowship Program, but like at the behest of the CIA. Now, a funny thing is that back in 1951, when they first launched Radio Free Asia, The CIA didn't realize that private citizens in mainland China didn't really have radio receivers. So to make their new propaganda wing work, the CIA sent balloons holding small radios inside tuned to Radio Free Asia's frequency. Like, they set the balloons free towards mainland China from Taiwan. Uh, And if this sounds silly to you, uh, please let me remind you of the time the CIA plotted to make Fidel Castro's beard fall out. (laughs) They were not above cartoon-level antics of pseudo-sabotage. Uh, And, of course, they set the balloons free and just a big gust of wind blew them all straight back to Taiwan where they were. (laughs) So this did not work out. Um, There is actually a CIA document, which you can view on the CIA's website from 1953, which discusses what they call, quote, the future course of international radio broadcasting by Radio Free Asia, which they abbreviate to RFA, a part of the Committee for Free Asia, which they call CFA. The background laid out in this document explains that the CFA had been broadcast from San Francisco and then it was relayed in Manila and three Chinese dialects and English with programs including news, commentaries, special features, and even music. Programs as of the 1953 documentation, they were broadcast for four hours a day, six days a week, and they targeted Southeast Asia overseas Chinese and the China mainland. And a direct quote from the CIA's internal document on this says, these programs are principally anti-communist propaganda. Hmm. So that's how they describe it. There's no two ways about it. That's what they're doing. So the document outlines problems that Radio Free Asia was having distributing these messages, though, uh, where the balloon thing came in. Like, they're like, oh, fuck, nobody has radios. So first off, the broadcasts were on a weak signal that couldn't be regularly heard anywhere in Asia. The document does acknowledge, though, that even if the broadcasts are not heard, at least making them has allowed Radio Free Asia, RFA, to build up a pretty strong staff of people kind of committed to like the CIA US goal there. The CFA also was recommending that, you know, they should have better facilities with stronger signals to relay these messages further. And in late 1952, the State Department agreed to expand the program with a shortwave transmitter placed near Manila to enhance these broadcasts. So in this document where the CIA is kind of talking about Radio Free Asia and the way to make better use of it and what's going on with it that you can view on the CIA website, a key concern they point out is this, and this is a quote, the American, even though unofficial, and they put unofficial in quotes here, which I loved, character of this operation will become well known, exposing the U.S. to ridicule and intensifying Asian suspicions of U.S. interference in the affairs of free nations. So they're worried about this. They're like, If people, even though we've done a pretty good job of covering our tracks, Radio Free Asia can't be tied to the CIA directly. It can only be tied to with the the committee for a free Asia, which then that is tied to us and it's kind of obscured. 
even though there's that unofficial association with the United States, if people find out, it's going to look bad for us. It's going to look bad that we're interfering with what other countries do. We're all up in their business. That's not right. And, you know, it's just going to be embarrassing for us. It's going to be an embarrassing blunder. And ultimately, what they found was that they had other news organizations available to them, specifically this thing called Voice of America, VOA, that might be better at spreading this message than Radio Free Asia was, since Radio Free Asia was having all these issues with the transmitters and this and that, and people were starting to understand that it was linked to that Committee for a Free Asia and get kind of suspicious about how American it was. Now, Voice of America, it's right there in the title, right? It's American. It is a state-owned international radio broadcaster from the United States, and it was founded 80 years ago in 1942, and it still operates to this day with a fiscal budget of $252 million per year. What, what, did, $252, didn't you say that NPR altogether is 300 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have almost the same budget as NPR, but it's all coming from the U.S. government directly. Oh my God! No pledge drives, and we can't. At Voice of America, and we can't afford to uh, cancel student loans. No. So Voice of America provides digital TV and radio content in forty-seven languages to affiliates around the globe, and it's primarily consumed by a non-American audience. And this is taxpayer-funded, state-run media that most of us don't even know exists. Did you even know that existed? No. I had no idea. Who would fucking know this? Except for, you know, nerds. Or a lot of people who are in the military, when they're abroad, they're like, oh yeah, Voice of America. But they're not the intended targets of it. They just know it exists. Uh, Yeah, so it currently operates in 46 foreign languages. So it's not like they're doing it for the service people. You know, service people just happen to encounter it when they're out. So according to the CIA document we've been talking about, there's a quote in here where they say, the line which Stalin's death makes most applicable to the PRC that uh, Melenkov has succeeded to a position of influence over the communist movement to which not he, but Mao alone is entitled, can as well be used by VOA, which is Voice of America, as RFA, Radio Free Asia. So what we see here is this clear message that the intention of Radio Free Asia is definitely to broadcast anti-communist propaganda to sway the politics happening in free countries, and also that they're actively strategizing the best way to do it while minimizing its ties to the U.S. government which is just super interesting to read on these now declassified documents on the CIA website, still marked with a confidential stamp and everything. And if you haven't checked, I include all of the sources for our episodes in the podcast description. So a link to this document will be in there too. And it's just a pretty interesting piece of history if you want to take a look at it. And on top of all of that, what we're seeing is that the U.S. government is also tactfully determining what information Voice of America broadcasts abroad for messaging efforts related to that same goal of spreading anti-communist propaganda. So that kind of sentence kind of implicates both Radio Free Asia and Voice of America and pretty solidly is like, yeah, these are propaganda wings. The document also explains that in 1952, Radio Free Asia was the only ongoing committee for a free Asia operation. So what they said was, CFA, Committee for Free Asia, senior representatives had been in the field only two or three months and were still laying the groundwork for their activities. Now, the situation is entirely different. CFA's field projects are already paying off, particularly in Hong Kong and Burma. For example, CFA is now responsible for five bookstores, has produced one movie, which received enthusiastic response from large Buddhist audiences in Ceylon and Burma, has caused establishment in Burma of a central authoritative Buddhist organization for the purpose of spreading anti-communist teachings throughout Burma, etc. 
So this quote is so interesting to me because it really is a summary of how effective U.S. CIA efforts at propaganda were in the region at the time and how quickly they worked. They're saying that, you know, when Committee for Free Asia first got started, they'd only been in the field two or three months. They were doing Radio Free Asia because they knew Radio Free Europe had worked so well. But then they're like, well, now that we've been here for a little while longer, like, do we even need Radio Free Asia? Look, we opened five bookstores. We made a movie. We started, like, these movements happening here with our propaganda influence from CFA, like the little parent group that Radio Free Asia was supposed to be under. So perhaps the most interesting thing in this document, though, is where the CIA outlines the principal objective of the CFA, the Radio Free Asia's parent group. And it says, CFA's principal objective is to bring into being, stimulate and assist Asian groups in the formation of self-sustaining and dynamic democratic cells, which themselves will oppose communism and strengthen the political, social, and cultural structures of their own nations. The success of CFA field representatives in the past six months in getting this concept across has been an important factor in winning Asian acceptance. But RFA is not and cannot be animated by that concept. It is probable that the greater RFA's success in becoming a voice in Asia, the more difficult it will become for CFA representatives to maintain or expand Asian like acceptance of CFA as an enlightened US organization interested primarily in helping Asians help themselves. So this is pretty interesting, right? Because basically what they're saying is like, look, CFA has actually done a good job of sliding under, you know, the radar here in Asia. People don't really know that this is like an American military operation. They think it's like a humanitarian group who just really wants you to know how evil communism is so you'll fight it yourself. But Radio Free Asia, it's kind of associated with Radio Free Europe. It's kind of clunky. They're not doing a great job. Basically, people could figure out that Radio Free Asia is the United States CIA a lot easier. And then because it's associated with the CFA, which is the Committee for a Free Asia, then people would distrust the CFA too. And we can't have that because the CFA is actually making really good progress is mm -hmm. basically what they're saying. So it seems to me that like the CIA was trying to pull the strings by planting seeds and ideas into people's minds in different countries in Asia, but then pretend that they were all the ideas of these regular Asian citizens all along. And they were actively trying to disguise their influence in this. So this is some real psyop shit basically. Cause so they're like, oh my God, that was a great idea you just had. And then the person's like, wait, what? And they're like, that idea you just had to fight communism? She just told me about it. it was a great idea. And the person's like, yeah, I did. I did have that idea. So this was basically the goal of the committee for free Asia working there. So what they're saying is that if people know about how closely RFA is like related to the CIA, they won't trust any of the operations that committee free Asia was pulling off already in Asia. The final conclusion of this report was that radio free Asia's modus operandi conflicted with the CFA and was no longer needed by the CFA at this time. So in 1954, the Committee for a Free Asia was renamed the Asia Foundation and incorporated in California as what they call a private, nominally non-governmental organization devoted to promoting democracy, rule of law, and market-based development, capitalism, in post-war Asia. Huh. Yeah. Then, the next year, Radio Free Asia went off the air. But this was the same year, remember, 1955, that the Asia Foundation, its parent branch, was funding journalists to write what they wanted about Asia. So we know that while Radio Free Asia stopped broadcasting in 1955, the Asia Foundation, which was the CFA's new name, 
continued doing what the CIA said was ultimately just more successful work in the region. Mm. Okay, so at this point, do you have any questions? Because this is a lot, right? It's confusing. It's, yeah, it's a lot, a lot of info. So basically, like, CFA, now Asia Foundation. Yes. Because they're just like, we can't, we don't want people to know that we're associated with the CIA. Right, because they, they actually were really successful. Yeah, and so now uh, Radio Free Asia, off the air. Off the air. They're like, get this out of here. It didn't work so well. Dead we in the water. It would be like Radio Free Europe, but no, we're out. So then by 1967, the Asia Foundation, which again was previously that CFA, the Committee for Free Asia, uh, which the CIA was talking about in that gnarly document we just discussed, it was well established by 1967 as a private American philanthropic organization. But then the New York Times uh, published an article on March 21st of that year saying that the Asia Foundation was still receiving CIA funding. And everyone at the Asia Foundation knew they were receiving funding from the United States federal government. But the foundation's assistant public affairs officer, John Bannigan, was like, well, we didn't know if it was the CIA directly, but we knew we were getting government money. So the New York Times is like, wait a minute, are you guys, the Asia Foundation, actually just a private philanthropic nonprofit, or are you an arm of the government? And this became this massive question that the New York Times was trying to ask. So we know through declassified documents that when John Bannigan was like, nobody knew it came from the CIA, everybody knew that it was coming from the CIA, actually. And when the story broke, the Asia Foundation was like, we're not going to say how much of our funding came from the federal government. Maybe it was just a little bit of it. But also we know from declassified CIA documents that it was 100% of their funding. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it wasn't even like a non-profit. No, no, no. It was just actually the government doing business as a non-profit. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now the Asia Foundation denied any role in spreading U.S. propaganda. They're like, we're not a CIA propaganda wing. Oh, my God, why would you think that? But they did acknowledge that they were working in Asian schools and libraries, student centers, and doing what they called social and economic research, which sounds right up the CIA's alley from everything we know when they were discussing the successes and goals of the group back when it was called the CFA. Because remember, they were like, we don't need Radio Free Asia. We've got this group on the ground right there that everybody trusts that's doing good work through all these other efforts to encourage people to start their own like grassroots movements against the governments that their countries. So this is pretty much what the Asia Foundation said. They're like, we're not doing propaganda. We're just doing all of these other things, right? So in fact, State Department documents indicate that the whole purpose of the Asia Foundation, which they called a Central Intelligence Agency proprietary, was to, quote, undertake cultural and educational activities on behalf of the United States government in ways not open to official U.S. agencies. Wow, so they're just like, we're going to figure out a way to do this. Uh, Maybe not legal. (laughs) Yeah, right. They're like, well, the CIA is like, well, we can't do this as the United States government, but we can do this as this private nonprofit that just just wants to help people. Yeah, it's just like, you know, like I feel like, especially like after like the the war on terror they're like well the u.s government isn't doing this it's the blah 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 like, right like when we had all like the, the like black ops like when we had like, they're like the they're contractors. contractors right you know so when this story broke the new york times also outlined who some of the trustees were on the board of the asia foundation 
And it was like a who's who of government, U.S. government workers. We had Edwin O. Reischauer, former U.S. ambassador to Japan. We had Arthur H. Deed from the State Department. We had Ellsworth Bunker, who was the U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam. There were even former U.S. representatives to the United Nations, former secretaries of the Treasury, and a former assistant secretary of defense. And they had people who, like, used to work at the Pentagon, who were, like, now just like, yeah, I'm on the board of this totally not government, not CIA-related charitable uh, foundation. Yeah, I wonder what in, like, 20 years we're going to find out, like, was actually, like, not a nonprofit now. Oh, for Probably sure. Probably stuff that, like, I mean, I'm not a policy wonk, so I would, I would be like, oh, mm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And then just one year before this story broke in the New York Times, the State Department was actually already aware that people were beginning to ask questions about who exactly was funding the Asia Foundation. So one now declassified document at the time was top secret from that era said, TAF, which is what they call the Asia Foundation, is now experiencing inquiries regarding its source of funds and connections with the US government. It is conceivable that such inquiries will lead to a published revelation of TAF's CIA connection. Okay. So they're really putting it out there. They're yeah. like, yeah, we're doing CIA, that's us, and we are doing the Asia Foundation. <laughs> they're like not, not they're, within their group, everybody knows this, but of course these documents are all top secret, classified at the time. So that same State Department document went on to explain potential ways to separate the Asia Foundation's funding from being directly linked to the CIA in order to allow the Asia Foundation to weather public exploration of its funding and come up clean. Hmm. They're like, okay, this is getting bad. We got to find a way that the CIA can't pay for this anymore. Because if it turns out, people find out 100% of their funding comes from the CIA, all the work we've done here is bad. Um, and by April of 1967, they had already crafted a new way to fund the Asia Foundation, removing it from CIA secret funding so that it could continue to operate in the interest of the US government abroad without drumming up suspicion. And there's this internal memorandum from the CIA at the time that explained it like this, and this is a quote. So TAF, remember the Asia Foundation, TAF's present resources are sufficient to sustain operations through July 31st, 1967, the end of the foundation's fiscal year. To meet these obligations and to allow TAF management to plan rationally for fiscal year 1968, immediate firm commitments must be acquired on future levels and sources of support. This agency is prepared to provide whatever assistance remains within its authority and competence to offer. To undertake further necessary action, however, the agency requests that the committee now designate the agency or official to whom TAF management should look for future guidance and direction with respect to the United States government interests. Hmm. So they're basically like, yeah, it's we're we're put passing it off so that it can prosper and thrive without being tainted by CIA blah. Um, but you got to let us know who which government agency's taking them on now. Like who's taking them under their wing? We've got them up till this point, right? July 31st, 1967. Who do we bounce them off to now? So by 1973, the government had created this thing called the Board for International Broadcasting. And this was during the Nixon administration. And their job was to oversee and finance things like Radio Free Europe, remember, and Radio Liberty, as well as other former CIA branches like the Asia Foundation. Hmm. So a CIA report compiled in 1981 stated, the Asia Foundation has become an essential instrument for conduct of our cultural exchange program and for projects of high political sensitivity. TAF's programs in Pakistan impart consistency and visible continuity to American influence. 
Elsewhere in Asia, TAF is an important carrier of American ideas on democratic institution building to politically and socially influential groups not approachable officially. TAF's private, less than official nature suits perfectly the Asian proclivity for dealing in delicate matters through ostensibly independent agents, nevertheless of proven reliability. TAF's demise would destroy an asset built up over 30 years at a cumulative cost to the government of $200 million. Yes. So this report addressed two potential funding methods for the Asia Foundation to prosper going forward. The first would be a separate appropriation to the department with a clear congressional mandate for annual earmarked funding for the Asia Foundation. Like, you guys just got to put it in your congressional reports that every single year they're getting money from Congress. The second would be to make the Asia Foundation a public corporation. So in a congressional bill regarding the fiscal budget for 1984 and 1985 for like the entire U.S. government, the Asia Foundation we know was explicitly listed, authorizing earmarked appropriations for the Secretary of State to make grants to the Asia Foundation in each fiscal year 1983, 1984, and 1985. And that kind of indicates that the first option is the one they went with here, right? Like Congress has got to earmark funds for the Asia Foundation if the CIA is not funding them so that they know they can always plan to have money. And to this day, uh, the former parent branch of Radio Free Asia, once called the Committee for a Free Asia, then renamed the Asia Foundation, still exists, receiving the majority of its funding, $91 million in 2019, from the United States government. Wow. Yes. So, you know, that was all really interesting, right? But that doesn't bring us to Radio Free Asia today. Why do we suddenly have Radio Free Asia today if the U.S. government disbanded it way back in 1955 because it wasn't doing its job, right? That's what I was wondering. Yeah. Well, on March 12, 1996, Radio Free Asia was officially founded or refounded, depending on how you want to look at it, as a private nonprofit corporation under the provisions of the 1994 International Broadcasting Act receiving its funding from the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Okay. Which is the U.S. government. Oh. So it's worth knowing that in 1993, the Clinton administration here in the United States advised cutting funding for things like Radio Free Europe, which was, you know, now operating under that Nixon era thing called the Board for International Broadcasting. So basically, Clinton was like, do we even need this thing anymore? The USSR fell in 1991. What are we doing with an anti-USSR propaganda wing operating in East Europe if there's no USSR anymore? Mm-hmm. And everybody, because remember Clinton's thing too was like balancing the budget, remember? Oh, yeah. And it actually ended up being really bad for the economy, Yeah, which is a side note. I mean, honestly, like my hot take is Clinton was almost just as bad as Reagan. Yeah, he was pretty conservative. Um, but everyone kind of freaked out. They were like, oh my God, you can't take our government propaganda wings away from us. We love them. So instead, this compromise came out. And it was this thing that's really confusing because it sounds almost just like the thing Nixon did when, you know, they were like, how are we going to pay for this? And Nixon was like, oh, I'm not this thing. So the new thing that was the compromise in the Clinton administration was called the International Broadcasting Act. And that is what established the Broadcasting Board of Governors to replace the Board for International Broadcasting. It's just like all these names are like so similar that that was previously overseeing this shit, basically. So there's a direct connection here between Radio Free Europe, the CIA's propaganda wing, and this new Broadcasting Board of Governors created by the Clinton administration, which we now know funds current day Radio Free Asia. 
Also, fun fact, it still funds Voice of America, that other CIA branch that's got the $300 million, basically, or $250 million a year budget that we're paying for to talk about American things in other countries. Okay. So, to me, this sounds pretty familiar with what we saw the Asia Foundation do in order to distance themselves from the CIA and circulate their funding through different government boards instead, which didn't carry the same bad connotations as the CIA does in people's minds. However, we don't have declassified documents as recent as 1996. So the reality is that we don't know all of the details of the funding, the CIA crossover, and politicized goals of Radio Free Asia in current days for certain. However, in February of 1997, Vietnam responded to Radio Free Asia's recent activities, saying in a newspaper called Nan Don, abusing modern broadcasting technologies under the pretext of freedom and democracy, a handful of hostile forces in the United States have been pursuing a plan of peaceful evolution in an attempt to interfere in other countries' internal affairs, destabilize, and eventually overthrow political regimes out of their favor. They intentionally use information and cultural means as an invasive instrument and persist in realizing their scheme cooked up carefully for heinous purposes, which is pretty much responding to, you know, Voice of America and Radio Free Asia as they operate today in the region. And in the Foreign Relations Authorization Act of 2002 and 2003, Joe Biden, who was on the Committee of Foreign Relations, submitted a report to authorize funding for the Department of State. Um, and the United States International Broadcasting Activities, as well as other foreign affairs programs for fiscal year 2002 and 2003. And in this report, it is stated that funds are earmarked in each year for Radio Free Asia. The committee expresses its support for efforts by the Broadcasting Board of Governors to devote significant resources under the Broadcasting Capital Improvement Account to counteract the jamming of transmissions by several nations' governments, most notably Radio Free Asia and the Voice of America by the People's Republic of China. So basically, in this Joe Biden document, he's like, we got to give them more money, Radio Free Asia and Voice of America, because uh, China is starting to catch on that it's U.S. government propaganda and they're jamming the signals. Oh. So another section of the report notes that they are raising the grants for fiscal years 2002 and 2003 for Radio Free Asia. Obviously, this was a while ago, but this was just interesting. From $30 million annually to $35 million annually. So around this time in 2002, we start to see the ramping up of spending on Radio Free Asia. And this is just, again, a few short years after they were officially refounded in 1996 as a private group, like a private nonprofit. Uh, one, other things in this report that like stipulate that the board agency may provide for the use of United States government transmitter capacities for relay of Radio Free Asia. That's like super interesting. That's in there. They also say that the International Broadcasting Bureau should include representatives of Radio Free Asia like on the board. Mm. They also say they need to assess the effectiveness of Radio Free Asia within three years in order to continue to receive funding. And obviously we know that was in 2002 and it's 2022. So obviously when they assessed it, Everything was probably great because we still have Radio Free Asia today. Today, Radio Free Asia broadcasts in nine Asian languages with headquarters in Washington, D.C., but also has offices in places like Hong Kong, Taipei, Bangkok, and Seoul. By late 2005, Radio Free Asia had expanded broadcasting to podcasts and RSS feeds and now also does videos, blogs, message boards. They're even on YouTube now. They have a weekly audience of nearly 60 million people. Whoa. Which is bigger than Radio Free Europe did at its height. Whoa. And now, this is the part that really blows my mind. Radio Free Asia is often a source cited by the BBC, 
uh, Reuters, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Vice News, Fox News, CNN, and perhaps most ironically, the New York Times, hmm. who was the news article publication that first broke the story about Radio Free Asia being CIA propaganda Whoa, way back in 1977. The same New York Times that told us Radio Free Asia was a CIA propaganda arm and the former parent of Radio Free Asia, Committee for Free Asia, aka the Asia Foundation, they also told us that they were being funded by the U.S. government. They now use Radio Free Asia, which is still funded by the U.S. government, as a source when talking about things happening in Asia. That is, like, wild to me. Hmm. Now, this brings me back to the concern that the New York Times published themselves in their 1977 article about the CIA's international propaganda wings abroad. Do you remember, kind of how in 1977, when they were talking about this, the New York Times mentioned that journalists were worried that, like, CIA propaganda-filled articles, which could be purposely misleading or downright false, might be accidentally picked up by American reporters who then include it as fact in their stories here in the U.S.? Yeah. Yeah. So, basically... How do we know that's not what's happening today, especially if Radio Free Asia is now frequently being cited in mainstream Western news sources as being, like, a credible source? Yeah, that's really difficult. Like, to me, it would be like, well, you have to corroborate. Like, you can't just take this one source at its value. You have to, like, not, like, you have to get multiple sources to corroborate. You can't just take it on face value. I mean, if you don't think it's, like, 100% credible because of the uh, the funding of this place. Like, you got to corroborate it yourself and not just be like, oh, that's what they said, so it's true. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's become, like, almost institutionalized. And th this is, though, obviously still a question we should very much be considering. Even though now it seems like all of those previously CIA-funded propaganda wings are instead being funded by the International Broadcasting Act and its Broadcasting Board of Governors. It's still the U.S. government. Um, and do you remember the meme kind of like Charlie Day with a corkboard and the string behind you? Oh, yeah, from It's Always Sunny. <laughs> yeah. Once I got to this point in my research, this is totally how I felt. I was just like, this group funded this group, and then they became this group, and then they changed their name, and then they reopened as this, and then in this year they did this. But, like, the basic summary of all of this information is that the CIA created the Committee for a Free Asia, CFA. CFA created Radio Free Asia. They dissolved Radio Free Asia because they said Voice of America and the Committee for a Free Asia could do all of the same propaganda ink better without Radio Free Asia involved. Then the Committee for a Free Asia renamed itself the Asia Foundation. Then the U.S. public found out that the Asia Foundation was funded by the CIA. So then the CIA said some other government branch needs to fund them now because we can't compromise the work they've been doing for decades. So the U.S. government started funding them through this new thing called the Board of International Broadcasting. Then the Clinton administration was like, do we really still need this anymore? The USSR fell. And a compromise was reached to change funding from the Board of International Broadcasting to the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which now funds the new Radio Free Asia as well as Voice of America with taxpayer dollars. So that's like the summary yeah. of the cork board behind me with all the strings. And the pushpins. It's a lot, right? Um, and what kinds of stories do we have today that are primarily sourced from Radio Free Asia? Well, for starters, the 2014 story about Kim Jong-un's haircut being mandatory in North Korea. Wait, that came from Radio Free Asia? That came from Radio Free Asia. And it turns out to be false. Yes. And more recently, there was a story about how someone smuggled Squid Game into North Korea and then they were sentenced to death and killed by firing squad. 
Wait, what? Yeah, that was a that was a Radio Free Asia story. Uh, and did they ever corroborate it, or could they ever find... No, no, and in fact, people in North Korea were like, uh, you wouldn't have to smuggle Squid Game in, uh, Squid Game's a critique of capitalism. Oh. They're like, we love it, great, more Squid Game. (laughs) So there's this woman, Catherine Dalpino, who's a scholar at Bookings Institute, and a former staffer at the State Department under Bill Clinton, and she calls Radio Free Asia a waste of money that has more to do with domestic political symbolism than with helping indigenous movements in the region. She says, wherever we feel that there is an ideological enemy, we are going to have a radio-free something. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, Delpino says they lean very heavily on reports by and about dissidents in exile. It doesn't sound like reporting about what's actually going on in a country. Even to an American, it's rather propagandistic. So a lot of the stories we hear in the United States today about things happening in Asia actually can only be traced back to one source, Radio Free Asia. Even if they've been reposted or cited by reputable news sources like the BBC or the Washington Post or even the New York Times. It doesn't mean everything you know about Asia as an American is a lie, but it does mean there's a good chance you're consuming information through the lens of a Western pro-neoliberal government bias. They could be truths, sure, but just as likely they could be mistruths, distortions, or outright lies, and we would have no way of knowing. So, Kenno, what do you think? Yeah, it seems like to me, like, if your news reporting is under such a cloud of suspicion, then you need to either separate yourself from the government to be like, we are nonpartisan, or you're... Your story is all your stories are all going to be clouded with, uh, you know, is this propaganda? Is this not even if it is a true story? I'm sure there are journalists who work there who are just like, I'm just reporting the news, you know, like I'm working a job like they're not thinking of it that way. And to me, this is like a re- the reason why like journalism is so important. And I think what's really important is investing in like citizen journalists and like on the ground, the people who live there, like having um, like multiple sources. Like, I mean, I did journalism in college and I feel like I didn't even get that great of like, (laughs) like an understanding. But like my understanding is, is like something like, like to me, this would like cloud all of the stories that you do, whether you want to or not. You know, whether, and it's like, it is unfortunate if you're actually reporting something that's true and important. Yeah, it's really interesting because today Radio Free Asia is like, the we're funded by the government, but they kind of make it sound like it's like NPR style, you know? And they're like, but the government doesn't tell us what to report. But it's like, how how can you believe that given the history of Radio Free Asia? Yeah, and I think it's like, I mean, it's definitely important to consume multiple sources and have media, I feel like, and have media literacy, which like we don't have a lot of in the United States. Like, I consistently see people reporting, like reposting stories that I'm like, whoa, this does not, this does not sound right. Like, there is only one source for this story. Like, if something is usually too good to be true, it usually is. Or too sensational or, or too shocking. Yeah, if it's mm-hmm. something that feeds in right into your narrative, um, like, and it's something that's a little fantastical, it usually is too good to be true. And I think also, too, like, I just think about, like, <laughs> like you know when we were 
you're talking about like Sherlock Holmes and like all the like James Bond and all the spy stuff where it's just like, uh, it seems so to me, it seems like, like all the stuff that's in our media and movies about how cool it is to like spy and do all the stuff is just like so disheartening that you have to like do all this like underground, like opaque shit instead of just being like, why can't we just help people out? And if we think that a way of life would really help people, just be like, we really think that this would be helpful because look at how it's worked. Instead right. of doing all this underhanded, weird, shady shit. Well, I think they have to do that because it doesn't actually work that well. The way of life that we're selling to the world is not really doing great. So you have to do all this shady, underhanded shit to manipulate information and come up with fake data. Because if you really told both American citizens what was happening in other countries and people in other countries what it's actually like in the United States, you wouldn't be able to like put forward that myth of the American dream as easily. Yeah, and it's, you know, also, you know super a lot of like super rich people own the media companies here i mean if you think about like fox news the washington post is owned by a billionaire yeah uh, like you know it's just like to me it's like a lot of the arm of the media is an arm of capitalism it really is and it's like and the thing is it's not that people at those like news agencies aren't actually doing good work it's like the bigger it's like you zoom out to the bigger picture of still just a couple people in power who can sway, um, you know, I feel like, okay, you can't physically make the entire population of the United States just do like work for you. You have to like have like a, you have like, that's why you need like a propaganda arm or news stories or like stuff like that. Like, I feel like a lot of the reason why people would be like the CIA is important is literally because of like, fucking mission impossible and right. stuff or just yeah. like all these news stories about like oh and then they the cia they managed to like overcome in this like you know uh this you know like i think about like argo or something like right about and the, i liked argo but that also i think was cia funded but when you when you go back out you're just like whoa well what's the history behind this story like you know and it, you go further back and you're like this is not like from a, a, like, there's so much more going on here that's so much more nuanced and like, oh, it's just, my brain is about to break. Where it's just I like, know. but it's like once you get that sense of that something might not be, like might have, you know, okay, everyone has their biases, like, you know, where it could be just from like how you were born or like, you know, uh, I mean more like, you know, we are going to report on stuff. We're going to see the, the world through a Western lens because we were right. born in Western society or whatever. Like we're always going to see that because we're, it's like the, the water we're swimming in. But like when it's something like your funding comes from the government, you're always going to see those stories of being a pro-government lens. Well, also it's like your funding comes from the government, but it comes from the branch of the government that was created specifically to take over funding for these things from the CIA because the CIA didn't want people to know it was being funded by the CIA because then it would ruin the CIA's agenda. And to me, there's probably always going to be some slippage where it's just like, yeah, tech yeah, we're like, oh yeah, we get the money just straight from the government. But you're just like, well, to me, it's probably like those same people in the CIA, you know, a lot of those people like bleed out through other agencies. Like maybe there is like, to me, it's like, maybe there's just like a secret channel where it's like, you know, someone from the CIA is telling someone 
like their one contact at um radio free whatever to like be like oh i think you need to run this story like that's not a far stretch of the imagination no actually and when we did the episode about like the cia and operation mockingbird they talked about it a lot how they'd have like one journalist you know and sometimes it would be like joseph alsop like a really prominent journalist so they'd be like write 300 articles for us uh, about what the CIA wants people to know. And I think what people don't realize how damaging this is, is then I actually, now is my tinfoil hat. I don't know if this is on purpose because then they're like, you can't trust anything. Like, right. And it's just like, but then it's like, you can't trust any, you know, they make it this vibe of like, you can't trust anything when there is some truths out there that you need to know. Like, it's for true. example, I do think about like COVID because you're just like, well, I don't know what I can, you know, people are like, I don't know what I can believe anymore. But there are some like, there are some things you need to know. Yeah, you know? I feel like definitely like I don't, I don't trust any news story that cites Radio Free Asia yeah. as a source. I'm like, no, that's not real. And that doesn't mean that Radio Free Asia d- definitely is reporting on things that, like, aren't all real. Like, I'm sure they pick up stories that sometimes are real things happening too, maybe, but it's like, okay, I'm not going to trust anything that cites Radio Free Asia, though. If somebody else says it, we'll look at that. But, like, like Radio Free Asia as a source, like, the fact that major journalists are still doing this and, like, citing it and major, like, newspapers are running it, it's, it's wild to me because it legitimizes it, you know? Like, Radio Free Asia might not have, like, the most credibility behind it, but, like, the New York Times does. Yeah. The Washington Post does. And when they say Radio Free Asia is a trustworthy source and you have to do all the research I did to be like... Who funded it? Where did it come from? Why was it started? Who's this person? What was this government agency renamed? Oh, and that's what happened to this. It's like, what average person is going to do all that work to figure out that the news story that they read that linked to this website that looks super official and, like, they just care about people's well-being and safety is actually probably still a CIA branch of misinformation. Yeah, and it's hard because it's, like, they're... It's, you have to, like... It's, like, now your, your responsibility as a news consumer to know like who you can trust Mm -hmm. and it's hard like for me like I I listen to like the programs that like report on the news yeah like on the media right it's like really good like because they're like they're it's journalism about journalists and they talk about like they kind of get into the weeds of like what is truth like how should journalism be funded how you can look at statistics and like or when we were when we were listening to a lot of like you're wrong about like someone actually going through and reading all the statistics and doing all the legwork so you don't have to, but you're not second guessing that they did the best that they could to go through all the statistics and go through all that stuff for you because you don't have five hours in a day to research Radio Free. I almost said Radio Free Disney. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there is a Radio Free Disney. No, but I did like with that, um, the woman said who used to work for the Secretary of State, the State Department, She's working in the State Department, and she was like, wherever we have a political enemy, there will be a radio-free whatever. Yeah, and it's just, like, it's also just, you know, a bummer because it's, like, we can't have, like, free college education, free health care, like, free college. Like, we can't have all these things, like, yet uh, we can devote all this money to, like... Half a billion dollars a to year propaganda. to propaganda. Well, to me, it's, like, you know... A little bit, I'm kind of like, it's not a bug, it's a feature of the system. Because if you, you have to have all this propaganda, and because it's like, 
the goal of the the main people who are in charge who are like in the government who have been in who are entrenched in the government who have been you know at the top for years you know like it's just like it's if you start letting people be like you if you start giving away that safety net everything else starts to crumble because people won't work shitty jobs yeah no it's true and i think also it's like it's so important to spread like the myth of like the myth that we're thriving in the United States, like, like Dude. <laughs> we talked about this in our Love Fraud Island episode last week, where people who are committing, like, romance scams on Americans, they often view it as, like, a victimless crime, because they're like, Americans are also rich, and it's like, why do they think Americans are also rich? Because we're constantly telling people capitalism's amazing, and everybody's rich and thriving here, and we're all doing great, but it's like, nobody's talking about the, you know, it the last time it was calculated, nearly 900,000 people a year dying from poverty-related issues in the United States. That was pre-COVID. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, it, it's like, you know, we talk, We haven't been, like, all around the world, you know? Right, right. We, you know, just, and it's just like, but you meet people who come over from, like, places with more social programs, and they're like, what, the, what, what the hell? Like, you know, especially from Europe, we're like, oh, we don't get any vacation days. Like, we don't get any vacation days. We don't get any um, family leave day. I mean, in some states you do, but it's, like, so bureaucratic. It's, yeah. like, you know, you don't get family leave or, you know, uh, 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 maternal, paternal parent leave. Yes. Like, it's just, like, we don't get anything really that nice unless you are um, wealthy. Right. We don't have most of those like totally normal things. But again, it's like we export the idea that we're doing better than everywhere else. And and when you think about too, like how we talk about like with, with these, with like Radio Free Asia and like the Committee for Free Asia, the Asia Foundation, how they're like, we just want you all in other countries to love democracy and start your own democracy and have your own freedom and democracy. And you're like, are these fucking buzzwords? Because we don't even have democracy. Yeah, like, if you think about it, like, how many people are disenfranchised um, by gerrymandering? Uh, voter ID law. Voter ID, or even just, like, to me, everybody should fucking vote. Like, regardless of whether you're a felon, if you live here, if you're a cit- like right. a, a naturalized citizen or not, like, if you live here, like, to me, the the idea of, like, a democracy is, like, everyone should be able to vote right everyone gets my, heard and that's yeah. gonna happen my hot take is that you should be able to vote from 13 and up i think so too i think i knew so much more about politics when i was a teenager because i had the free time to invest in it yeah honest actually fuck it let the children vote <laughs> like i think that if you can if you can read and write which is what usually by like what fifth grade yeah like if you're 10 i say 10 and up because like <laughs> little kids sometimes have like the best moral compass that's like, true. Or like the or most. Or they're assholes. I don't know. <laughs> Something, remember a 10-year-old who didn't like you? Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, yeah, granted, I know, like, a lot of kids will, like, just do whatever their parents tell them yeah. to do. So, like, maybe that, that you know, that's a hot take for down the road. First, we got to get at least the 18-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. We got to start with the adults voting. Yeah, at least we can start there and work our way down to the to the five-year-olds yeah I mean this is interesting actually because when I was a teenager I was like 19 maybe I remember um I was at my friend's house and she was 18 and she was no she was 19 too and she was living with her dad still 
And I was like, oh, your ballot came. Are you going to vote? It was like, you know, we have absentee ballots you can do in California. And she's like, oh, I never vote. And I was like, oh, it only takes a second if you want. We can do it at the same time. And she was like, oh, no, my dad just votes for me. And I was like, your dad's like an asshole, like, Republican. And she was like, yeah, I don't know. So, like, you just give your dad two votes? That's true. You know? And I'm like, that's what? Because she didn't care. And it came to her house. And she's like, I don't know. I never thought about it. He's just, like, done it since I was 18. I don't know. I guess we can think about the kid vote later. Voter fraud. But I'm just saying, yeah, it's just, like, we are not – Franchised here. Enfranchised. Enfranchised. You, you're disenfranchised. Whatever. What's the opposite of that? Yeah, we are not empowered and encouraged to yeah. exercise democracy here. And for things like the president, obviously, it's like we have a we have a, a republic. We have like a representative. It's yeah. not even a direct representative. Republicans will like to tell you that we have we're a republic and not a democracy. I mean, we're but not it, a democracy. And if you think about it, like think about politics in LA. The LA County Board of Supervisors is five people. They are the most, even above the mayor, they are the most important group. LA County has more population than 40 states. Five people control. control it. Wow. And um, one of the people on the board, their father and grandfather have been on the board. So wow. they, that family has been on there for 50 years. That's wild. Yeah. Like, if you think, like, that's. That's and like the way that like like I just think of like LA County where it's like okay you have these neighborhood councils that are supposed to be like you can just join but like in Echo Park for example like a bunch of people wanted to join to um, reform there was some sort of LAPD like gang initiative and then the I forget if it was the city council or the someone from the state was just like nope we can't ha- we're just gonna shut down this neighborhood council and then you have Whoa. you know it's like okay but then you have like let's say city council you have all these like homeowners and like people who are just like i don't want this built you know the nimby people like not in my backyard like don't build new housing because that makes my housing prices go down and it's just like it's a fucking mess like and it's like really it it entrenches it the people who have had power systemically who like for years people with money people with land people who are business owners you know who have property and it's just like it's it does there's there's no way to get through to that system if you're just like an average joe or what i hate saying average joe no the average the average uh the average worker bee. A pleb. <laughs> a pleb. <laughs> a humble pleb. Um, no, but that's interesting, too, like, how, like, for the, okay, so for the International Communications Board of blah, 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 the governors of that board who allocate the funds and, like, oversee all of these media groups that we now know used to be very directly linked to the CIA, they're all appointed by the president. You don't vote for those people. You don't vote for the people who who decide which propaganda wings get money and yeah. which don't. And I know that technically it's like, well, you're supposed to, you vote for the people to decide because you can't go through and do all this stuff. But we stuff. don't even directly vote for them. Yeah, so it's just we like. We have the electoral college. Yeah, so it's just like, you kind of like, I mean, to me it's like a bigger sense of like, well, you have to create those systems outside because this system, there's no way to get in and there's mm-hmm. no way to get out. Like, it's not like. It's just like, to me, it's just like, okay, being like a citizen journalist, like going out there, like knowing who to support people who are like on the ground, like 
but it's like it's 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 hard it's super hard it's really difficult I mean I did see somebody say that social media is great because you can hear from people about what's happening where they live but also um there's been a lot of stuff about how like even the people whose like videos you see online where they're like I'm experiencing this right now ah like sometimes those are fake yeah you, you, you there's I don't know. It's you. You have to be able to exercise discretion on your own. Like you were saying, like you have to be able to build media literacy skills, and it's something that's not taught. It's not encouraged, and and also I think it helps to know the big players on the field. Yeah, I mean, there's some media literacy that's like you know, if you go to a website and it's like there's like three articles on it, probably not a trusted journalistic source like right. you know there's there's some simple stuff like that where it's just like if the website has only been up for like a couple days or has three articles and all of them are on the same thing right probably but it's just like also you know sometimes it's harder to know the, the capital t truth you know because everyone's you know like if you're going to get existential but to me it's like regardless like if you think about something from like an ethical or moralistic frame view you know framing it can help guide your ways where it's just like well is what they're talking about you know um you know what or what are they debating like the right thing to do for or like for me like uh I hate this like what I think it's called like fairness bias where they're just like we have to show both sides of the issue but what if the issue is like Nazis or something yeah. where it's just like you know there's there shouldn't be two sides. It should just be bad. Right. There's just right. the bad side. But they'll just, or like, they'll be like, you know, an issue of just like women's rights. It's just like, you're going to have a men's rights active activist come on to debate this. Like, no, there's no both sides. Here. I think it's the just... thing that's difficult, though, is that when you get into territory where it's like propaganda wings are telling you human rights abuses are occurring. Yeah. And so you want to be like, well, I don't like human rights abuses. But also, you have no way, like, like who profits from the United States telling me that everybody in North Korea has to get the same haircut as Kim Jong-un or they die? Yeah. I you mean, know, you're like, I, that well, sounds, it's, that one sounds outlandish, right? So you can look at that and be like, that's probably not true. But that same news source, how many things are they putting out that are a little less outlandish and a little more believable, but operate off that same idea? Because the whole thing about Radio Free Asia is they're like, we're dedicated to exposing oppression in Asia. And to me, the big red flag is it's like, well, if you're the United States and you're actually like a nonpartisan thing that actually cares about the well-being of people, why don't you start with exposing oppression in our country where you are that you know and you're familiar with? And why don't you let people in Asia talk about their own experiences? Yeah. And to me, it's just like what are the, what could potentially be the goals of something um, like that to me? Mil military because yeah. you're talking about like some like because me i'm just like oh my god if that were true like that's terrible right like and so but like what would be further out for people if you keep saying stuff like that is this like well we have to go over there with force with violence or like right. or violence is justified it's because of this manufacturing and, consent and maybe like it's not like a real uh like a hard war like a, a cold, it's a cold war. Right, it's not a hot war, it's a cold war. Like we're in a cold war with China right now. Yeah, right? where yeah. it's just like, well, to me, it's like the military is invested in staying the military and having its huge budget. So if you create all of these things where we're, you're not only facing, so to me, there's like, they're like, we 
face threats from other countries, but other countries are threats to themselves. And we are the paternalistic father figure who comes and rescues them through our big ass guns. So it's like, but I mean, I I don't mean to play it like, so like, you know, I don't mean to take it lightly, but to me, it's like the military industrial complex is invested in staying itself because they are a huge part of the budget um, and they know um, we we've done all the research they know that they are um, frankly wasting money on right. certain things so they can keep their budget that big because it's big corporations it's big money you know so to me it's like they are invested in keeping the world as a threat so that is why we are always armed and always ready to fight and have you know it's it's for the interests of their profits right for sure yeah yeah that's true i mean when you think about like the cia and like radio free asia or any other propaganda like branch that the cia has had radio free whatever as that woman said um yeah it's like the cia ultimately it's an arm of our defense department it's an arm of our our militarization and it's just like i feel like yeah you could do a deep dive on everything like but to me it's 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 kind of like regardless whether you where you stand on political spectrum although i don't think a lot of conservative people are probably listening it's just like i don't think so (laughs) it is a huge it's like it's 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 a waste of resources it's a waste of resources if you know for running this type of operation arguably this is like the fucked up part i i think that if you are like america is gonna kick the whole world's ass and fuck socialism fuck communism like capitalism has to remain king so i get my profits and i get paid it it is it's neoliberal propaganda that's being spread through these things and we think about radio free asia and how many people even today hear these things about north korea about how i was even like i don't consider myself particularly affected by what the u.s military wants me to believe but then you ask me what happens in north korea and i'm like holy shit i have no idea i know all these stories i've heard but i've never even stopped to consider if they're true or not i just assumed they were yeah but to me it's like it's actually way more sinister because it's like then they're just like well what can you believe you can't believe anyone so you just have to rely on yourself and you don't yeah. have to give a shit about it anyone else. Well, I do think that they... <laughs> maybe that's going that's going a little far, but I tend to spin my wheels on this stuff, as you yeah. know. I'm a very big picture person. Yeah. I'm like not. I'm I'm like the forest, not right. the trees. I'm, I am as well. Yeah. Where sometimes, but sometimes all that little information builds up into a spider web that makes a greater mosaic of of something else. And I think that this these types of stories do feed into a larger picture of um, basically uh, a, a world, you know, like where capitalism will do anything, anything to survive mm-hmm. regardless of who it hurts. Yeah, I think that's definitely the, I feel like every, almost every single one of our episodes can be broken down into just that. It's like, People will lie, cheat, steal to make sure that nobody thinks there are any viable alternatives to capitalism, that capitalism is actually serving the people that it's hurting, and will defend capitalism with with guns and all of our might every chance and, we get. Yeah. And media misinformation campaigns, and, you know, I think that's true. I think that is, like, the overarching narrative of almost every single thing we talk about. And also, it's the thing that you've said before, which is, like, the best and simplest way to put it, it's just that rich people don't care about us. It, um, yeah. Rich people don't care about us, and every single thing can be broken down into that. It's like, 
the CIA, the government, they don't care if we read a news story that isn't real in the newspaper, as long as it gets us to, as long as it, that story, like, manufactures consent for us to have military action against an Asian country that our, our political powers are not invested in the same goals as. Yeah, for a country that's so individualistic, they don't care about the individuals. Yeah, it's true. It's really interesting. Well, I broke my brain on the Radio Free Asia episode. <laughs> and I will just be thinking about Radio Disney the rest of the day for some Radio reason. Radio Free Disney. Disney's the new enemy. No, maybe. Maybe. Maybe Disney gets so big that it threatens the United States. What if it's like, it, you know, like in that book Snow Crash where uh, corporations just own certain states and the state, uh, Southern California just becomes the state of Disney. I don't like that. I feel like that should be Florida <laughs> and I'm going to stand by that. If I'm going to have any corporation own my state, I think it's going to be Mountain Dew. I think that's what I'm going with. They need to, they need to secede from the PepsiCo I don't know. They need to, yes, Mountain Dew, yes, this is my plan. Mountain Dew needs to secede from PepsiCo, become its own, stage a coup, a soda coup, become its own corporation, and then Mountain Dew can be my corporate overlord for California. Sounds good. I think it's good. I think we did it. That's it. Don't trust anything you see from Radio Free Asia, though. That's weird. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to support us further, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For a mere $2 a month, you can access bonus episodes. You can ask us questions, which we may or may not answer. Um, But if not, we're just glad that you are here. Thank you again.